He's one of the world's most respected business experts, Jeffrey Hazlett. I want to take you behind the scenes on what's happening in business today. And whether you're on Main Street or Wall Street, we're going to find out the secrets behind their success. This is All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. My next guest is a pioneer, the longest serving female chairman and CEO of a U.S. public company. Three times named one of Fortune's most powerful women, the former CEO and chairman of Playboy Enterprises, the former executive chairman of Canyon Ranch Enterprises, the current chairman of Hatch Beauty, a brand and product innovation company. She worked with her father, which we're going to get into that, and she's here on All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Welcome, Christy Hefner. Hey, all right. My very first question is, do you, you know, you served as the CEO and chairman of the company for about 20 years. And when I look back and I take a look at that, do you, you think that's a good thing or a bad thing that you're the longest running CEO as a female? of a publicly traded company. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, when it was pointed out to me that I had achieved that as I was leaving, my first reaction was that I had stayed way too long. (laughs) And candidly, I had thought about leaving uh, in the last few years and kept trying to find the right moment to do it. So I don't think there's a perfect number of years because I think circumstances vary and sometimes which was certainly the case at Playboy Enterprises, companies go through phases, and so it's not as if you're repeating yourself over and over again for two decades. But at the same time, I do think that it would have been better for me personally to have started my next chapter a few years earlier, and it probably would have been good for the company to get fresh perspective in. Yeah, but when you sit there now, and I love the way you answer that, but I want to answer it more, I'm going to ask you more as a woman. Because the fact that you, you know, 20 years is the longest running for a female executive in that role. To me, that just seems like somewhat of a travesty. That shouldn't be something we should be saying at this time in the U.S. business history. Well, I hear where you're coming from, Jeffrey. I guess what I would say is I'm less concerned about being an outlier in terms of tenure, especially in an environment where, as you know very well, you know, the average CEO of a public company's service is, it's definitely under five years. It may even be under four years now, but mm-hmm. it's right in that four-year range, which, on the other hand, I think is too short. But the point is that there is an incredible amount of turnover at that level. Right. What I think is more disturbing by far is that we still are mired in this 15 to 20% of women CEOs of uh, the Fortune 500, the Fortune 100, women on corporate boards, 15 to 20%, the same percentage as we were at decades ago. Yeah. That, I think, is much more disturbing. Well, you're starting to see a trend, though, of, and I agree with you absolutely 100%, without question. The, you know, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for women taking leadership roles, which they should be and they should should have been, and that they haven't been as much because of the way the system has been um, large boy, you know, to a large extent, a good old boy network, which which you, you, quite frankly, should know pretty well being in the business that you were in. And I want to get into some of that. But, you know, I ask a lot of people to, to you know, as I go out to my fan base and I say to the fans and my friends out there, what, what do you want me to ask Christy Hefner? You know, and a lot of them 
came back and and said, what did, you know, they wanted me to ask in some version or, or another, what advice would you give to women? Which I think is a good question, but I I don't think if, if I if I ask, I don't know, let's say Jack Welch, do you, do you think I would get the same kind of question like, okay, let's ask Jack, uh, what advice would you give to men? Is, is that a fair question to be able to ask you those kinds of things or to have that kind of conversation with you? I think it's fair. I also think your point is accurate, which is that no, Jack wouldn't be asked that. But I think it's fair because I assume in the main it's a reflection of what we were just talking about, which is that women are still underrepresented. And since we used to think it was a pipeline problem, that is to say that as more young women were not only going to college, but getting their masters, their law degrees, their MBAs, going into the workforce, that the problem would take care of itself. But we now are a generation later, and what we have learned is we have a leaky pipe problem. That is to say, women are going into the workforce, but at each level, whether it's to director or VP or senior VP or EVP or CEO or corporate board, we're losing women along the way. And therefore, the question of what does it take to allow women to get the equal representation that they not just deserve, but frankly would enhance the effectiveness of organizations because there's just been too much research that clearly demonstrates that companies that have diverse leadership outperform those that don't. Yeah, are they, are, but are, is this leaky pipeline, is it caused by the, the women just are a little bit smarter, quite a bit smarter, and they just decide at a certain point, hey, I can get out of this and I don't have to do all this stuff? I mean, well, personally, I don't think there's a single cause, and therefore I don't think there's a single solution. I do think that there is still, to a phrase that you used a moment ago, an old boys network. Uh, and that's very true, I find, on the corporate board side, where the majority of those seats are still filled not through professional searches, but through who people know. At the same time, I think that, as you know, Sheryl Sandberg and others have written and spoken about, Women need to be sure that they are volunteering for posts overseas, applying for jobs, applying for promotions, in effect advocating for themselves aggressively. And lastly, I would say we have some structural barriers. We're the only advanced uh, westernized economy that doesn't have paid family leave, for example. Mm -hmm. Well, in a society in which women are the primary parents, that's going to make it harder for women to get ahead. Yeah, I agree with you there as well. You know, but you're starting to see the board structure change right now. In fact, I've said this publicly that I think if you're a white, middle-aged male, your chances of getting, you know, on a board of directors right now is like a snowball chance in hell. And if you're a woman of any, of quite frankly, any age, you, you know, you can you can probably get on that board, meaning that they're really looking for women to serve on boards. And when you look at, like, the list of new board members, you're seeing a great number and a great propensity for the selection of women, which I think is a very good thing because it's been long, long overdue. I think it is getting better. Uh, I think that there is definitely a more affirmative effort. I think the search firms have built better databases of the you know, thousands of qualified women who are out there instead of what I sometimes saw in the past, which is they would have one or two women. And then when a board said, oh, we are interested in interviewing Meg Whitman or interviewing, you know, Marissa Mayer, then they'd be told, well, 
I'm sorry, she's overboarded and leave the impression that that was the only woman who might qualify. But if you look at the stats, it's still not true that the open board seats are going 50-50, male to female. So I wouldn't say we're where we need to be. Yeah, well, they're not. Uh, they're certainly not balanced, but I think there's more, well, at least that's, and it's only my opinion, doesn't mean it's right or it's wrong, it's just my assessment. I just think a great number more women are now starting to go on boards at a greater rate than I men. I agree with that. Yeah, it, it just, it, which is great, and I've got a lot of friends that are doing that. Now, and you serve as chairman, you know, of Hatch, which well, I want to get into Hatch Beauty a little bit, but you, you've served in that role in a variety of companies and still are, right? I mean, wh- which boards are you on today? Today I'm on two boards. I'm chairman of Hatch Beauty, and I'm on the board of a company called Luminary Digital, which is an e-learning company. And in the past, I've been on a variety of boards from Market Watch to Telocity, obviously Playboy, the advisory board at Canyon Ranch. And I've always found board service intellectually very stimulating. And frankly, even when I had a full-time executive job, i.e. the 20 years I was CEO of Playboy, once we had accomplished the turnaround and the company was in strong financial shape and focused on growth, I actually thought serving on one other uh, major board was helpful to me. It gave me a different perspective. It broadened my network. It gave me ideas about resources that I might not otherwise have had. So I'm an advocate of that. Yeah, I like, I I serve on a number of boards as well, and I've always liked that Um, one, you know, just from the intellectual aspect of it too, but the, also the compensation is not a bad thing. Where the where they where they have good compensation, the connections and so forth are always good as well. The did did you um, would you like serving more on boards than serving in, in the executive role? When you th- when you're thinking back more now as being more of a chairman than than a CEO. Well, at this point in my career, yes, I'm not interested in another all-consuming executive job, having been, as we were discussing, CEO for 20 years, there is a 24-7 worrying about everybody else aspect to those kinds of jobs, and I am not complaining about it. I enjoyed it. I'm proud of the things we accomplished. You know, we saw where the world was going in terms of content distribution away from just uh, print and the ability to leverage a brand before most other companies did. But it's not something at this point I'd like to repeat. So I like the ability to have kind of a portfolio that's a mix of consulting work and board work and not-for-profit work that in the aggregate adds up to full-time, but gives me, candidly, a control over my schedule and therefore my life that's different than what I had as CEO of a New York Stock Exchange company. Yeah, which, you know, that's part of what you said. There was a couple of things in the earlier when you were talking about when you stepped down, and you might have done it earlier, but, you you know, to some extent you couldn't. And, and then you hint here, too, and I'm, I pick up on those things because I know what that's like having been in a Fortune 100 company. You, you know, your time is not your own which you think it is, you think at right. that level, you can control all that, and you it's don't. It's the opposite, right. It's the, it really is, I mean, because there's people who are controlling that, and then, but also circumstances, because, for instance, in 2008, 2009, you stepped down in 2009, I mean, you, we're just good getting through the economic downturn, and and that was at almost at its height, so to even to step down might have, have shown weakness, at least to the market about the company, when, when that was not the case at the time. Um, no, you're so, right. I mean, I, I I obviously left at a time, for example, when the stock was very depressed because of the economic circumstances yep. of, you know, the country and the world. 
But at the same time, we had a very strong balance sheet, which was very important to me. So I knew the company was on solid footing and would go back to growing as the economy improved because it was fundamentally healthy. But there's no perfect time is what I kind of learned is that either you're in the middle of a new initiative or a new hire that you want to build from or you're solving a problem and you just have to finally, at least for me, answer the question is, will the company be okay if I leave now? Do I have a strong team? As I say, is the balance sheet strong? Uh, And in our case, the answers to those questions were yes. Yeah. Well, and at that time, quite frankly, I mean, that's when you and I became friends and I was just so impressed with what you were doing to change it to a lifestyle brand, which I want to get into in a few minutes. But, you know, it was a real high for the, I think, the company, even though the stock might have been a little bit stressed, but all stocks were stressed. Exactly. Back then, so let's be clear about that. Hey, you know, having served on a board, and I'll, I'll kind of leave this theme, but what advice would you give to somebody who's, you know, serving on a board or thinking about going on a board of directors? Because there's a lot more opportunity today, I think, because of all these little startups and tech companies. You know, you're you're in Chicago, for instance. They've got 1871. They're a hotbed for um, a lot of new startups there, but all across the country. And you're seeing more, I think, of a uh, renewal of entrepreneurism. And what advice would you give to somebody who are going to go serve on a board? Because it's a different role than serving, you know, in the company. Yes, and I think you make a really good point, Jeffrey, which is that the role also can and does differ depending on the stage that the company is in. So I have enjoyed being on the board of, for example, Luminary Digital, which is a young company that got incubated out of Notre Dame that combines on a tablet basis expert commentary with complex text and social media. But my role there is very different than the focus that is more on process and procedures and risk management in a mature, you know, large company. So I think you need to match your own interests and abilities with the needs of the company and be sure that it's right for the company and right for you. And do look at a range. Don't think that the only boards that might be of interest to you are the household name, you know, Fortune 100 companies. Candidly, there can be just as much intellectual, if not more, um, satisfaction and engagement in a much younger company. Yeah, well, and the chances of getting on those boards are almost nil anyway. I mean, you have to almost be born into it to some extent. And the, re- the reason I say that is because there is a network for that and has been. And, you know, if you look at most boards, and if I were going to be critical of them, and I am, uh, is that they don't turn over enough. And I think there does need to be a little bit more turnover in those boards. And they're raising the age limit. So once they're in, they just keep raising the age limit. And and not that age is a bad thing by any means, because I'm starting to get up there. But I just think I love term limits. I love people having to get out because I think it puts people more under the microscope. It's a really good point. I happen to agree with you. And candidly, the absence of term limits and the not as low a retirement age requirement that we have in the U.S. as compared to most of the European countries is one of the factors that makes it harder to get more diverse boards because there are just yep. fewer openings. Exactly. Exactly. Are you now on, on Luminary, are you on their advisory board or on their full board? I'm on their full board. Yeah, because there's a difference between being on an advisory board and a full board. Full board has a lot more responsibilities, more liability too, quite frankly. Yes, it's really more, as you know very well, it's a fiduciary role as yeah. opposed to, you know, a kind of part of a kitchen cabinet. Yeah, 
and 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 a lot more of the advisory boards when you're doing that for those that are listening you're you're doing a lot more introductions you're helping them get to that next level and and the compensation typically is different you know in terms of uh, what you're paid depending on whether they can pay because not all of them can pay right away either that's a right. uh, part of what you need to understand i i well that's just awesome you you've always had a job now, you, you came from a fairly high-profile family, but I was reading back in your background and having known, talking to you, you, you made a quote, and I think the quote was, you've always grown up having a job, whether it was babysitting or, or wrapping Christmas gifts for a year, <laughs> I think is one of the things. Is, why was that so important to you? Well, I never thought there was an alternative, candidly. I mean, I, I have not inherited money, and so... I always expected that I would live on what I earned. And even when I was still in school, you know, I was paying for a car with my boyfriend or I was, you know, saving money for Christmas and birthday presents when I was in high school. And then obviously when I graduated college, you know, it was as it is for every recent graduate, you know, the case of, okay, where are you going to go to work? What do you think you're interested in? And so for me, it was about finding the right work not ever about whether I was going to work. Mm-hmm. What was your favorite job? Well, I'd have to say, honestly, in, in the best of times, being CEO of Playboy was a great job, and I loved it. But I, I loved being a journalist, and my first interests professionally were journalism and law and, and politics. And I worked as a journalist for a year for the Boston Phoenix. And then I thought I was going to go to, if I got in, uh, the Graduate School of Law and Public Policy at Yale. And honestly, when I was in college, my dream was to wind up either in the U.S. Senate or on the Supreme Court, because those were the things that were really passionate interests of mine. Oh, my goal was, I remember writing to college. Uh, my entry to Augustana College was I was going to be president of the United States. I remember that. I love it. <laughs> I did the same. And now I just write checks. You know, it's a lot of, it's a little bit <laughs> yes, easier. I do that too. Uh, and, and speak up on issues, which I do. And I, I'm, I'm very active. What was your favorite job, I mean, growing up? I mean, I, I can get CEO. Hey, I would, I mean, CEO is awesome. CMO for me was awesome. <laughs> right. What was your favorite job growing up? Um, well, if, I, if it counts, I would say the year I spent as a journalist after college if that counts as still good. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll let you give it. I'll give you that. I'll give you okay. that one. Yeah, I'll give you that one. Because we were still young and we didn't know what we were doing half the time back then. Yeah, yeah. I think there's truth to that. Which is, which is a lot. So when you, what was your, when you joined Playboy, what was the first role that you had there? Well, I, I was given the title special assistant to the chairman or the CEO, which let me kind of do project work is really what it was. So... Someone would say to me, why don't you go look at the movie theater business because Playboy has these two movie theaters and they're not making money and we're trying to figure out if we should be in the movie theater business. And then I would go off and I would do all this research and try and learn about what the dynamics were that made a company successful in the movie theater business and sort of write it up. Or I would get assigned to work with somebody in ad sales. And so I sort of floated. And then the first kind of more substantive assignment I got was to be responsible for working with some outside consultants who had come to pitch the company on opening a pilot retail boutique that was going to combine music and clothes. So the two categories young people spend most money on. And they had a distinguished career in retailing, so 
the company's management kind of deferred to them, and I was asked to be kind of the project manager liaison since nobody at Playboy knew anything about retailing, which frankly should have been the first clue that maybe it wasn't a business the company should have gone into, which is what turned out to be the case. But we opened this store called Playtique, and pretty much nothing performed the way the projection suggested they would. <laughs> and so that, for me, was a fascinating experience of having to kind of roll up my sleeves and learn what was it that wasn't working and how to fix it without a team of people in the corporation who had that background, just the employees in the store and the resources I could assemble. And it actually turned out to be a very valuable experience for me because it caused me to learn things like there were resources, in that case, trade associations that you could join and get statistics of what average shrinkage was or what payroll should be as a percentage of sales and ways to benchmark what your performance was. And I learned to build a network by calling on the general managers of all the stores in the sort of Michigan Avenue area and taking them to lunch and trying to learn from them what we were doing wrong or whether we could even make it work. And it was a small enough business that the fact that it lost money for its first year or so didn't really matter to the company. So it was a good learning experience for me, and then ultimately we got out of it because it wasn't a very good business. But it was an interesting kind of microcosm of a company. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Taking you behind the scenes of what's happening in the business world, Jeffrey Hazlett hosts All Business, brought to you by Fortinet. Let me, hey, now's a good time to take a break because America runs on Duncan and where every cup tells a story. And we're telling stories here, and we heard some great Duncan stories from our guests so far, and we're having a great conversation with Christy. Christy, how much, hey, you ever do any deals over a cup of coffee? <laughs> Oh, definitely. <laughs> I, I would not. I would not be half as effective as I am without coffee. I got. If I don't have a cup or two before, you don't want to talk to me in the morning. So I know how the rest of America, America feels. Hey, we're, we've been talking a little bit about the the Playboy experience and you know, good, the bad, and the ugly, so to speak. Where, where you get into a new company, and you start thinking, and everybody thinks, hey, this is a great idea. We're going to go start this boutique, and this, you know, because of our name, everybody's going to flock to it. But then you find out that's not the case. That's not the behavior. Did that help you? Um, that experience of knowing about the boutique and and what was right and what was wrong kind of help lead to you at a later time to to move it into more of a lifestyle brand, which you did a great job of. Well, I think it helped me kind of viscerally appreciate that, as you know very well, not everything that is a popular product is a brand. Yep. That brands have another emotional connection component to them that allows them to move from category to category that's different than just name recognition. So I would say, you know, United is an airline, Virgin is a brand, you know. Nike is a brand, Reebok is a shoe company. But even among brands, where you have permission to play is a combination of how the consumer perceives you and consumer behavior and where you have competitive you know, competency. And I think that that boutique experience helped me navigate later 
what were the right opportunities for expansion for Playboy, which had previously gone somewhat helter-skelter into a wide variety of businesses, only some of which had succeeded. Yeah, I, I thought the move that you had made was brilliant. I, I remember listening to you talk, um, I think it was just right after you had left, I can't remember, and and I was still at Kodak, and I heard you talk about, uh, you know, as a lifestyle brand, because I was looking at that for some aspects of Kodak, and and looking at taking Kodak to more retail and away from certain things in relationship to the company, and and that's when I realized we probably couldn't do that. And I just thought it was a brilliant way to take the, the lifestyle of Playboy and then move it. And you did that into a digital fashion, but you really, truly moved it into more than just a men's brand, I thought. Yes. No, I think that's true. I mean, I think what we learned was that the values of sort of sexy, fun, sophistication, uh, you know, lifestyle were leverageable. Uh, beyond the media businesses. And so we did the highly successful expansion into Las Vegas. I did the very successful deal with Cody for, you know, fragrance. And basically we built a billion-dollar licensing business globally that leveraged for men and women, in fact, most of the products were women's products, that uh, lifestyle aspect of the brand. And I think that helped position it in a way that was consistent with really how it started, which was as a lifestyle magazine. How, how was it in terms of stepping into that role, moving from where you were, and once you kind of got your feet on the ground, knew what was going on? But, I mean, it had to be really tough, Christy. I mean, you're in a, you're in a, what would, a, a men's magazine at the time, right? You are surrounded by men, uh, in the corporate level, there were not a lot of female executives. I know when you left, you had about 40% of the company you had brought in and, and, and changed some of that. But you were also in the publishing. I mean, you're talking about you're in the most stodgiest kind of thing you could probably imagine. And here you are, fresh of breath there, new and young, and all of that going for you and going against you at the same time. It had to be just, I mean, some days I bet you had to go home and just go, what the hell have I done? <laughs> yeah. Well, because when I first became president, it was in an environment where the company was facing really a crisis as a business. It had sold its British casino licenses under challenge, which were responsible for as the head of that operation like to say, more than 100% of the profits of the company. And so overnight, the company had gone from seemingly successful to reporting a significant loss. There was a crisis of confidence among the banks, in the stock market, among employees, that candidly, the complications of being 29, the daughter of the founder, a woman, without an MBA, all those things that quite legitimately to your question, were cause for concern, got sublimated to the basic fact that we had to scramble to save the company. And what I vividly remember being concerned about overwhelmingly was the responsibility to all those stakeholders, the people who worked in the company, the people who owned shares in the company. And by the time we were able to turn it around and divest from the businesses that weren't working, 
strengthen the balance sheet, reorganize the company in a way where the operating units had much more control over their businesses and start to lay down the strategy for growth that we would pursue that we've talked a little bit about in terms of the lifestyle brand and multimedia distribution of content. Then I'd already achieved a certain level of acceptance both internally and externally so that the biggest challenges of just being taken seriously were kind of behind me. Yeah, those were small those were small things compared to the, just the things that are staring you in the in the in the face. Yeah, yeah. It, truly. I mean there's good news but and bad say, news with that, right? I will say to your point about, you know, not a lot of women at that time, I can remember meetings where we were meeting with investment bankers or commercial bankers or auditors or law firms that they clearly scrambled to find some woman to bring into the meeting with me because <laughs> otherwise it had been just a bunch of white guys sitting there that pitching had, the business. Yeah, that had to be funny. So it was like, that just reminds me of the white times in Japan. I'd be the only big, huge white guy in the, you know, like I remember one time I walking through Tokyo Station, um, which is the busiest train station in the world. And, of course, I'm a fairly big guy, as you know, and I'm yep. looking across the crowd, the whole row, you know, lobby of the, of the uh, place, and I can see everything because I'm taller than everybody. And then second, I would, I would run into somebody who looked like me, and we would nod. You know, so it, <laughs> you know, it was like, oh, my gosh, there's somebody that's like me. And I, yes. I got to imagine you had a few of those kinds of experiences in boardrooms. Very much so. Yeah. What, so, you know, let me ask you, and I'm sure you I know you get asked this all the time. What was it like having to work with your dad? Um, and did, did that have any special um, good things or bad things to it? Well, I think it was made easier than in some other dynamics. I, uh, for example, was the first woman in the Chicago chapter of Young Presidents Organization. And as you know, YPO has a lot of second and third generation family businesses in them. So I've seen over the years a lot of that dynamic. And I think one of the ways that it was a little easier was that my father never really saw himself as or mostly wanted to function as a CEO. He saw himself as an editor of a really? magazine that he hoped would be successful enough so that he wouldn't have to get another job. Was, he, was he involved, though, in those editorial kinds of decisions? And, did, and by the way, did oh, you... Oh, he was very involved in the editorial oh, wow. decisions. Okay. Very, in fact, to this day, is very involved in them. Is, so did, even when he was carrying the title of chairman CEO, I would say he he had the ability, and he's very smart, to participate in and keep control over business decisions if he wanted to, and sometimes he did, but it wasn't the role he most was interested in playing. And so the fact that I was more interested in strategy, I was more interested in operations, I was more interested in management, I was more interested in investor relations, all of those things were not his core interests. So we were a little more complementary in terms of spheres of influence. Plus, candidly, I don't think it hurt that he lived in L.A. and I lived in Chicago. Yeah, it probably helped a lot. And, and I think it helped that I was a daughter, not a son. I think there's just a little less direct competitiveness mm -hmm. in that kind of, of dynamic. Uh, but I, I do remember once speaking to a group of uh, mostly sons of YPO people and somebody asking me, 
did I think he should go into, you know, the family business and saying, look, I don't think there's one answer to that question. It's very personal. But I would say this. If it's going to bother you that someone somewhere thinks that the reason you're in this role is because you're the son of the founder, then you shouldn't do it. Because there'll always be someone somewhere who thinks or even says that. Right. What I came to believe is that the vast majority of people would judge me based on what I did with the opportunity. And the people who couldn't get past how I got the opportunity were people whose opinions didn't matter that much to me. Yeah, who cares? I mean, by the way, you should. I mean, I have children that are involved in my business, and do I, you know, do I, first of all, they are involved in my business. Does that put them at some disadvantage and advantage? Yes, both. <laughs> but um, that's one of the great things about having a family business. But it's different because you have a family business that was a public business, very yes. public. And, yes. And I mean, I, there were definitely times really having to do with just the turnaround where I remember thinking, if we could just, like, go work on this for a year and a half and then go back and talk to the press and go back and, you know, go back on the street. That would be wonderful. But you don't have that luxury. Well, and I think he also, uh, where I would see, and I didn't know, and I guess if I think back, because I have seen a couple of episodes of various shows, and, and I know that they're a little overblown in terms of what they are, but, but you do see him involved in picking up photographs and talking about the issues. So that makes sense. But now it's 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 nice to see that you're reiterating that he was you know really into those details. I have always seen him at least more recently over the last couple of decades as more of a brand ambassador, and um, and I think I think he he plays both roles mm -hmm. is what I would say. Yeah. All right. I got to talk a little bit about tax. Tax season may be over, but tax issues issues aren't. So it's good to know how. Uh, to get around and make sure that you can navigate the tax season and all taxes and Liberty taxes there. It's led by John Hewitt. He's the, I've interviewed him. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to that interview, I did it on tax day because it was so significant. You need to listen to some advice that John has for your business. So tune in and listen to Liberty tax on all business with Jeffrey Hazlett. All right, I want to get into what I call rapid fire, Christy. So, you know, buckle down in the seat. This is It's really not that tough. But sometimes intellectual questions. Here's the first one. What do you have in common with actors? Bill Murray, Rain Wilson. Now, Rain played Dwight Schrute on The Office. And Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel. What do you have in common with all those folks? Driven to do really good work. Well, I think you probably do, but that's not the answer. The answer is you all lived in Willamette, Illinois. All right. Oh, I didn't realize there was a right answer. I thought this was just to elicit answers. Hey, no, it's, now it's you my, tell me the rules. Exactly. It's my show. It's my show. If you don't come up with the right answers, we, we buzz you out. Okay, there we go. Okay. Okay, next one. What do you have in common with Emmy Award winner Deborah Messing, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Thomas Friedman, and, if you can believe this one, Olympic fencer, Tim Morehouse. We all went to Brandeis? Yes, that's right. That's very good. Very good. That's awesome. Well, I know Tom went to Brandeis, so that was my clue. See, it was your connection. That was cool. But Deborah Messing. And also, you know, you so the, and, and the fencer, if you ever want to take up fencing, you just call one of your um, alumni. One of my best friends from Brandeis uh, fenced on the team. So I happen to know it was a competitively strong team. So I, I hear, who else is a, a fencer? Oh, Tom Cruise, I hear, is a big fencer. I don't, I'm not... I'm not a fencer. I, I have a shotgun. That's what I use. Hey, on October the 7th, 1997, the Chicago City Council 
approved a resolution which absolved who of all blame for the great Chicago fire. I had to ask you that since you're from Chicago. Mrs. O'Leary's cow. Very good. Very good. I thought that was awesome. All right. Here's the choice. White Sox or Cubs? I have to go White Sox because that's my family rooting interest. Is, although baseball is my least interested team sport, I'm more of a football, basketball, hockey fan. Uh, my mom and stepfather are huge White Sox fans. Oh, yesterday I was in the, I was in uh, JW Marriott in Chicago, and the Tampa Bay uh, team was there, staying there. And mm-hmm. I got I guess I'm in a photo. There, there was some public photo taken of them walking through the lobby of the hotel, and I'm in the background photobombing by accident. So that was awesome. Oh, you zealot. Yeah, I know. I, I love things like that, the little things. And someone, someone sent it to me and said, Jeff, did you see that you're in this photo? I thought that was good. Hey, what would people be surprised to know about you? That I played Daisy May and Little Abner when I was at the National Music Camp. Did you really? That's, I did. I, I want to see pictures. That's what <laughs> I, I am going to start. John, you're You'll listening, my producer. You'll have to pay me for that, oh, Jeffrey. John my, is my producer. I know you got to be John. You listen. you got to get me photos of this. This would be good. This could, help our, this could help our downloads greatly in terms of listeners. Okay, how about this one? East Coast, West Coast, or No Coast? Chicago. Yeah, see, I thought I, I was going to give you that one. I thought that was a good one. And and what was your favorite thing that you saw or did on the Galapagos? Oh, because you went there. I, uh, you're the yes. only person. I, well, I guess maybe I probably met some people, but you're the first one I really knew that went there. It's hard to pick one experience candidly because the proximity to even the birds is so amazing that you can't believe that you're standing, you know, two feet from a pair of blue-footed boobies who are mating in front of you, completely oblivious to your being there. Um, But um, probably scuba diving off of Kicker Rock was pretty extraordinary. You know, I almost asked you this question, and I didn't want to do it because of the word. And I almost asked you to choose choose between a giant tortoise or a blue-footed booby, and I didn't want to use that word. And you know what? I'm going to slap myself for doing that. I was trying to be so politically correct and being so nice, and then you brought it up. Awesome. There you go. I I appreciate the motive that caused you to hesitate, but I agree with you completely. Shouldn't have to. I shouldn't have to. By by the way, which would you choose, the the giant tortoise or the blue-footed booby? Well, I actually saw both of them mating, yeah. but because the giant tortoise fundamentally looks like a small Volkswagen <laughs> and the blue-footed booby is more animated, I'd have to go with the bird. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Hey, I want to give you a chance because you've been yeah, awesome as always. You're, you're just, you know, I, you, you know I just love you because every time you and I ever get together, it's just like we've... Again, you know, and I, I have this with a few people. It's just like we've always known each other. We've always, you know, been friends, but we always have great conversations. And we do. We do. We, we just talk about it. And, and it's like it's so natural and, and so great. So I appreciate you taking the time to, to be with us today and, and share some wisdom and some thoughts and some insight. Uh, I want to give you a chance uh, for a, a shameless plug because I love selling things. I love pushing things. So what would you like to plug today? Well, I probably should plug Hatch Beauty, which is doing extraordinary work for retailers and brands, but I'm going to instead pivot to my comment about public policy and say that to all of your listeners, if you care about making our government more effective, then I urge you to get involved in the movements that are going on state by state to both create public financing alternatives for campaigns and to end gerrymandering. 
Uh, well, it's a very big thing right now in Chicago, isn't it? And yes. all the stuff that's going on there. But I also, I do want to give you a little bit more of a plug for Hatch Beauty, a brand and product innovation company. I wanted to get into that, you know, we started running out of time because with you, we never have enough time. I never have enough time talking to you because it's always so much fun. And so, Chrissy, well, maybe we'll do it again. We are going to do it again. We have to. We're going to do it because we're going to be, we're going to actually do video and show the Daisy May picture. So we're going to come back. <laughs> Christy, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jeffrey. All right. Cheers. Taking you behind the scenes of what's happening in the business world. Jeffrey Hazlett hosts All Business, brought to you by Fortinet. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by Fortinet. Okay, after every show, I like to do something about what I learned. And I always learn a lot with Christy, as you heard. She's a good friend. Uh, we met uh, when I was um, at a Fortune 100 company, and she was a CEO and chairman of Playboy. And I fell in love with her. I fell in love with her intellectually, and she's just a great person. And every time we get together, we, we have great conversations. And I guess here's what I learned. I learned that it's okay to openly talk about issues. You know, I wanted to ask her about the women, the woman issue. I say it the woman issue rather than the women issue. The woman issue in terms of a lot of times journalists or people, people like myself or others like to ask questions because they're women and about leadership and questions. And I, to me, it just said, would I have asked a guy that question? Would I have asked a man that question? I saw Matt Lauer one time ask um, Brara, the chairman and CEO of GM, about her kids and taking time away from her kids. And I, when I saw him ask that question of the CEO of the company, I thought, would you have asked a guy that question? And it just really pissed me off, to be honest with you. And so I, I thought I'd do that today. And what I learned is it's okay to have good open conversations, but it's also okay to ask ourselves, you know, would we ask a member of the other sex that question? Would you ask somebody else that insight, insightful question on that side to see how they feel? Like, you know, as a guy, how does that make you feel? I, I just think that was, a, a you know, my learning today and then, you, you know, I kind of stayed away from one particular word because I thought it sounded funny. And I was talking to a, to a woman and, of course, she brought it up, which was awesome. And I love that. And so every time it tells me, you know, your gut's right, usually that gut, that gut feeling is right. So trust your gut. Listen to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett right here on Play.it. And do me a favor, uh, pass this on to someone else. Um, because the how I make money and how I get listeners is through you by you telling other people and downloading and subscribing to these great podcasts. And I appreciate it so much. Talk to you later. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.